Okay, let's uh, just come before the throne once more as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you once again for your word. Lord, thank you that it is living and powerful. And thank you, Lord, that it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And this morning, Lord, help us to see, Lord, our own reflection in these scriptures that we look at. And Lord, to be able to see that which in our life needs to be cut away. And Lord, that which in our life needs to be encouraged and cultivated. Father, we thank you for these many examples we have in your word that encourage us in our walk with you. And Father, we thank you that you are always faithful. Father, as we just study these books this morning, just open our understanding, we pray. Lord, just make our hearts ready to receive. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, just teach us, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So in our journey through the Bible this year, we've come as far as uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These kind of form really a group of three books that sit in the the post-exile history. Um, we've got uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, they all fall into that, that group. We look from a timeline perspective. Um, we can see we're moving through the, the, the history of the world, quite a rapid pace, really. Um, there's a lot of detail that's been given over the last few weeks, looking in Kings and Chronicles and so on. Um, but now we've got to that point after the Jews have been taken away to Babylon, they're now coming back. And that's really the focus of these books. We've got the history books, we just mentioned Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther here. But there's prophetic books also right at the same time as this. Haggai particularly, but Zechariah and Malachi were also written right at this kind of point in history. Again, I'm not going to go through all the details on these slides, but you can look at them in the notes and things afterwards. Um, but uh, uh, the Assyrian Empire, as was, um, fell. You remember the Assyrian Empire was the empire that had captured the northern kingdom of Israel in about 722 BC. Uh, well, that actually falls about 612 BC. Um, this battle that takes place at a place called Karshemesh and so on. Um, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, he's not actually the king at this point, he's, uh, his dad's still on the throne, but he comes to Jerusalem anyway at this point, uh, and it's about this time that his father dies, and he gets word that his father's died, he becomes king, and as a result, he lays siege against Jerusalem, and Daniel is taken back. Uh, subsequently, there's um, a couple of other sieges, we'll mention them this, uh, this morning as we go through. Um, we get to the time then uh, in the Babylonian history of this king, uh, Belshazzar. This is the king that has this feast and we have the writing on the wall. Uh, we'll look at that when we get to the book of Daniel. Um, and it's during the, the end of his reign that Babylon then falls to the Medes and the Persians. And this king, this famous king of Persia, Cyrus, um, comes to the throne. And that's at that point in history. And so it's just following that time historically uh, that we, we're going to look at this morning. Uh, and it's leading up to a decree that's going to be given by another Persian king, Artaxerxes. Um, this is a, a, a pivotal moment, uh, scripturally, in terms of the prophetic timelines of things. And we'll look again in detail at that when we go uh, into the book of Daniel. Because um, much of it uh, is dealt with and played out there as well. Uh, we go on through history and we get the birth of Alexander Great as the Persian Empire falls and the Greek Empire comes to power. And then eventually, uh, after a period of time, Alexander's kingdom divides when he dies. Uh, one of his, uh, one of the legs of the four legs in the sense of his empire uh, produces this individual, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and he's the one that lays siege to Jerusalem, puts an image uh, in the altar, uh, sacrifices a pig on the altar, and so on, uh, and becomes very 
very much a forerunner of Antichrist. And we'll look at that again in detail in the book of Daniel. And that then takes us on to the Roman uh, time and obviously leads us up to the time of Christ. So that's where we are. Why the captivity? Well, we need to go back to the book of Leviticus. And we read there in Leviticus chapter 25, picking up verse 3. God says to, to the nation, six years you should sow your field. And six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land. A Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. Well, as a result of the disobedience of that, God warns if they don't do what he says and allow his land to rest every seventh year, he says, I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And I will not smell the savour of your sweet odours. And I will bring the land into desolation and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen and will uh, draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lays desolate, it shall rest because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. So God makes it really clear to the nation that he wants them to allow the land to rest every seventh year. Now this is a major step of faith because it means that in the sixth year you need enough produce not just to get through the seventh year where you're not going to harvest or anything or sow in the land but also the eighth year because you've not sown anything that's not going to produce anything either. So it's a big step of faith but it was a necessary step that they would trust God. And of course we find that right through the history of Israel they don't do this. And so we get to the point that we were looking at last week in Second Chronicles. And then we read, picking up verse, chapter 36, verse 17. Therefore God brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young men or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the um, palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. And now we're given the reason that all that took place to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. Effectively, Israel had gone through this period of time. They hadn't let the land lay fallow to rest for the seventh year. So God adds it all up and says, right, you owe me 70 years. That's the time that God equates that they owe him for the time they've not allowed the land to lay fallow. So, as a result of this, God allows this captivity and Israel effectively uh, cast out of the land. Now, when we study and look in uh, scripture, it's easy to to sometimes get an initial view of something. As you look deeper, you start to see it's a bigger picture. One of the things we discover in this regard is two periods of 70 years that I mentioned. There's what we call the servitude of the nation, and that's specifically in regard to the people. And then there's the desolations of Jerusalem, as it's referred to. 
And that's specifically in regard to the land. Now both are implied in that verse from Leviticus. But when God brings this judgment, it comes in these two separate periods of time. Now these periods of time overlap as we'll see in a moment. Let's just look in Jeremiah first of all. Jeremiah 29 verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Neither hearken to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years, okay, so we have, after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. Then God says, just look again, God is going to cause them to return. It's interesting, we'll look at that in a moment. He says, for I know the thoughts they think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, to just highlight, actually, any other translation of the Bible that I've found, this last verse there says, give you a future and a hope. And that's what it says. Now, looking at the, the Hebrew text, you can translate it that way. But in the context, that's not what it's saying. It's not to say, we're going to give you a hope, something to look forward to. God is saying, in the context of this, exactly as we have it translated here, that God is giving them an expected end. There's a defined point that God wants him to be aware of. And this is exactly what God will do at a very specific moment. And I'm underlining this because I want us to understand how important or how precise God's dealing with the nation of Israel is in terms of the timing. And God, these things, the world looks on completely oblivious to the details and how much God has engineered these things. It's just it's breathtaking as you go through it. Let's just look firstly at the servitude of the nation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar comes and puts Israel under servitude with the first siege of Jerusalem. And that's in the summer of 606 BC. And that's when Daniel's deported to Babylon. Uh, We think, uh, historically, it was about the 23rd of July that year. Well, this servitude will then end, this 70-year period, will end in the summer of 537 BC with a decree that is given by Cyrus which seems to be about the 20th of July, 537 BC. Now that interval from those dates is exactly 25,200 days. Why is that significant? Well, because we've said before that when we look at prophetic scriptures, they seem to be, this isn't just an opinion, but they seem to be counted in uh, 360-day years. There's a number of examples we have of that in scripture. But this follows, this, this pattern again exactly maps that we know it was in the the summertime of 606 and uh, again various commentators and scholars have kind of pinpointed it to this date um that the um captivity in a sense began with babylon um and then we know also it was 537 that this decree and this uh, return home is granted and so on um there's a, a few interesting issues that people get into um regarding when uh, Cyrus started to reign and so on. And, and there's lots of uh, study you have to do there's the, with the kings, both with the Jewish kings and with the secular kings. There's something referred to as the year of ascension, which is not counted as part of their years of reigning and so on. So it's just a, there's a lot of study to kind of dig into these dates. But this is how it works out. And again, as I say, that's 70 years uh, of 360 days each. And that interval works perfectly. Now, that's the first one of these 70-year periods. We also have in Jeremiah 25, 
Verse, speaking up verse 8. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. It's interesting, the Gentile king is referred to in that way. And will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolations. Just want to highlight that word perpetual. It's just in the, the Hebrew, uh, it's just olam is the, the word. It means the vanishing point. It's not implying the perpetual in the sense of it will never ever be built again. Because of course we know Jerusalem is rebuilt. The walls have rebuilt, the temple's rebuilt and so on. So it's not saying that there will never be. But it's so far away it's hard to see it is the, the implication of the text. Moreover, I will take um, from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the candle. And this whole land, okay, notice, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And again, and this is uh, in, in Ezekiel um, now, so that's the beginning of this period. And Ezekiel is told to record the day it ends. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. So at this point, Ezekiel has been taken away captive. He's been in Babylon for this period of time. And God says, Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even of this same day, that the king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. So this is the day that... We're told that Ezekiel is away in Babylon at this point. He's recording the moment that this desolations of Jerusalem begins. So at the time that the army is surrounding Jerusalem, Ezekiel records it. It's the 10th of Tibet. In our calendar, we're looking probably about the 16th of August, 587 BC. Now incredibly, again showing the precision of scripture, in the book of Haggai, God says to Haggai there at the end of this period, And now I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. And jumping to verse 18, we pick it up. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. So God tells Haggai also to mark this date. Why? Well, because... Haggai nails the dates in 518 BC, 24th of Kislev in the, the Jewish calendar, 14th of August, 518 in our calendar. The, the exact day this ends. And again, we have an interval of 25,200 days. Exactly 70 years of, 300, again, 360 day years. So we have two periods exactly as prophesied to the day. Now, if we look at these two periods of time overlapping each other, again, the first siege begins in 606 BC. This is when Nebuchadnezzar comes for the first time, Daniel's deported and so on. This period of 70 years, the servitude of the nation, ends with this decree of Cyrus uh, given 537 BC. Some scholars you'll read will, will talk about the decree beginning in 539 BC. Again, as I said, to do with the ascension uh, of kings and so on, uh, it can be fairly easily reconciled, uh, the details. The third siege, 587, is when this period, the desolations of Jerusalem begin. So you can see there's an overlap of this period of time. And this, this period of, uh, of desolations, as it were, this 70-year period, comes to an end with a decree given by Darius the Great. Uh, 518 BC. I will apologise now. You'll, you'll find I'll say Darius and Darius. I'm talking about the same person. I just listen to English and American commentaries and I get very confused. So it's the same individual if I say Darius or Darius. Just, just bear with me on that one, okay? 
Now, we notice that we've got this 19-year gap at the beginning, and obviously, because we have the same period, we've got a 19-year gap at the end. Just make a mental note of that. It's kind of significant. And um, particularly when we look at Ezekiel, uh, you'll see why that is just so amazing. Uh, And we'll look at the details when we get there. So... The kings of the Babylonian Empire, I'm not going to go through all these in detail, but again, it's there just for reference if you want to in the notes afterwards. Uh, of course, Belshazzar, this king that's on the throne, when uh, Cyrus comes in and uh, takes over, as it were, at that point. Um, the Babylonian Empire, a reasonably large territory, uh, certainly at this time. I mean, this is the area of Israel here. Um, this, most of this area was just desert region. But when we look at that, Compared to the Persian kings, again, there's the list. A number of these are going to be significant. Again, Cyrus here, uh, the one we're most interested in. This is the, the, the Darius, Darius, whatever you prefer. Um, secular history refers to him seemingly as Guberu. This is the one that we find of the, the, the Daniel and the lion's den, uh, Darius. This is the king that's uh, on the throne there. He's appointed by Cyrus to rule over the province of Babylon. But then we have in the, the line of Persian kings, uh, we have Cyrus's son uh, that comes to the throne. This is the one that's mentioned in the beginning of the book of Ezra. We'll, we'll talk about that. The work on the temple stopped. These things we'll go through in just a moment. And then various other kings coming the way down. Uh, another, Darius the Great here is mentioned. And it's during his reign that this uh, desolation of Jerusalem comes to an end. And then we have this Xerxes. And this is the king that's on the throne when Esther, the book of Esther, takes place as well. So... And then finally that king, uh, Longumanus, this is the one who signs this decree uh, that is so pivotal in Daniel chapter 9 that we'll look at when we get there. So, so again, that's Babylon. But when we look at the Persian Empire, so much larger. Uh, that's the, kind of the area uh, that Persia ruled during this period of time. Okay, that's the history. Let's get into the text and, uh, and start. So the book of Ezra to start with. Well, book of Ezra, 10 chapters. Probably written by Ezra. There's not a lot of people that question that, to be honest. Um, it seems most likely. And Ezra also seemingly wrote and the majority of First and Second Chronicles as well. The purpose of the book seems to record the first national regathering after the Babylonian captivity. And the theme of the book, well, is very much is the end of the servitude. Okay, so this is to do with the people and the rebuilding also of the temple. The key characters that we're going to see in the book, well, we've got Ezra himself, obviously, Um, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. These are all the secular Persian kings that are mentioned as we go through this timeline. But we're also going to have these two individuals, just to make mention of, Zerubbabel, who we're told is the son of Shealtiel, and also this uh, Jeshua, or Yehoshua, again, the son of uh, Josedek. And these two individuals are very key characters in the work that takes place in Jerusalem. We're also going to find, as you read through, and we won't necessarily hear on all of it this morning because of the time, um, but uh, Tatnai is the governor of the land, and he kind of tries to cause problems. He's the one that effectively stops this work of rebuilding after Ezra and company have gone back. So but I just want to highlight, just for your information, again, just to see how wonderful Scripture is. There are some apparent difficulties. Now, people say contradictions in the Bible. Now, there's no contradictions. There's just things that we haven't figured out yet. But when we go to Scripture, uh, these things will become clear. Now, Zerubbabel is called the son of Shealtiel in a number of Scriptures. But he's also called the son of Padiah. Now, you may be familiar that sometimes... Somebody's called the son of somebody, and it may refer to them being a uh, grandchild of, so it could be the grandfather. That's clearly not the case in this context. 
The reason for that is that these two individuals were brothers. Shishiltiel and Padiah were brothers. So how can both of them in the Bible be declared to be the father of Zerubbabel? Well, it's actually quite a simple resolution. Because apparently Shealtiel died without any children. And so you may remember there's this Levitical requirement uh, given to us in Deuteronomy 25 of this Leverite, nothing to do with the Levites, a Leverite marriage. Okay, uh, la- uh, the Latin lever just simply means husband's brother. So if somebody was married and they didn't have any offspring, so that the land wouldn't go outside the family, typically the brother would then take the wife and raise up seed for the departed, for the deceased husband. That's the situation we find in uh, Genesis 38, that, that situation um, with uh, Judah and Tamar and so on. Um, so it become, And that was even predating um, the law and so on. Um, so there's this idea has been passed down, but it's codified in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25. So it seems exactly this is what happens, that Shealtiel doesn't have any children. So Zerubbabel's real dad was Padiah. So Padiah, the younger brother, so he raises up seed for his deceased older brother. Now, something else that um, is interesting with this, in Luke's genealogy, he actually identifies Shealtiel, so the uh, uh, father, but not the real father, but the, the one whose seed is raised up for, Shealtiel, as the son of Neri a descendant of Nathan. Now, this is also interesting because Shealtiel is actually the son of Jeconiah. Now, you remember Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, a descendant of Solomon. He's the king whom this blood curse is placed upon. Now, why all of this stuff? Well, it's helpful if we look at a kind of a family tree. First of all, let's just recap what we just said. So, Padiah seems to die without any children. So, consequently, Shealtiel seemingly takes his wife and then raises up a son in the name of Padiah. So Zerubbabel, biologically, is the son of Shealtiel, but also from a, a lineage point of view, is classed as the son of Padiah. So that answers that one. This also, though, is interesting because Neri apparently had no sons. So again, according to another law that we'll mention in a moment, he adopts Shealtiel as his own son, which is why we find that Shealtiel is referred to as the son of of Neri when actually biologically he's the son of Jeconiah. Why is all of this important? Well, let me just, just look. These are the family trees coming down. So um, from David's line through Solomon, this is the one Matthew records for us. Comes down through Solomon all the way down. Um, Jehoiachin or Jeconiah here. This is the one the blood curse is based on. And then we have this uh, Shealtiel here and Zerubbabel. And the same names also appear in this list, but you notice with a different father. And that helps us to understand why, when we look at those genealogies, there is that difference. Now, all of this itself goes back to Numbers 27. There were five daughters. and Their father, Zelophehad, died and uh, had any sons. So the eldest daughter happens to be a young girl by the name of Mara, which is, yes, that's where we got the name from. Um, she goes and with her sisters, and they go to Moses, and they say, look, what's going to happen when we, we, when, our, when we die, when our father's dead and so on? There won't be anybody to raise up seed for our father's name. So this strange exception is brought in, that the husband can adopt the son-in-law as his own son to raise up seed in the family line. Now, all of this, cutting a long story short, anticipates the lineage of Christ. Jesus, if you remember, comes down in the line, and we just looked at a moment ago, 
comes down this line from Solomon on the royal line. And yet this blood curse is placed upon Jehoiakim saying none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne. Okay, in fact, let's just look at the... If we look at uh, Jeremiah 22, the Lord says, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David. Well, the Messiah is going to come from this line. Well, the reason we get round that is because, yes, he is from the line biologically, but because we find that Mary's father, Heli, adopts Joseph... Using this rule, Jesus also legally is able to sit on the throne of David. So uh, it's an interesting study if you want to take it further yourself. The interesting thing is Zerubbabel, who we're going to mention and see in the text in just a moment, this son of Shealtiel and so on, he doesn't sit on the throne. And yet actually he's part of the kingly line. It's interesting that as they return from Babylon, he's the rightful king. But never does he make a claim for the throne. Never does he try and set himself up as king. And of course, yes, the Persian kings are still ruling. But he never tries to go for that. And it's just interesting that the Lord had made it very clear that none of the descendants of Jeconiah were, were going to be king in this line. So just an interesting uh, way all these little pieces fit together and so on. And all of these things also necessitate the virgin birth. This line coming down, in a sense, the seed of the woman. Uh, obviously, we mentioned in the Garden of Eden prophesied in Isaiah and so on and required also by this blood curse so something you might want to take a study further but it's just fascinating how all these details fit together and when people look at the outside and claim contradictions it's purely because they've not read so okay so let's jump into the text we read Ezra 1 1 and we're not going to read every verse don't worry but we're going to we're going to kind of skim through some of these things now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So notice God had already said to them about an expected end. God had made these promises to them. A very definitive thing that God was going to do. And God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Then he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver, with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So not only... The Cyrus grant permission to return, he provides his blessing and says, look, if you're not going to go, you give to the work. You support this work financially. You give gold, silver, and everything that's going to be necessary. Now, in the British Museum in London, we have the steel of Cyrus. I was really surprised when I first went up there and saw this. It's much smaller than you think. It's only about that long. It's kind of, kind of not much bigger than the Pringles packet, really. Um, but uh, it, this is this incredible document, that's, or the state document, that's exactly what it is. And on this steel, as it's referred to, um, there Cyrus records that without any battle he entered the town Babylon, sparing the calamity, which is true, there was no battle, he just came in by night and took control. And as I returned to the sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, this is the river Tigris, the sanctuaries of which uh, have been ruined for a long time, of course, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and so on, and established for them permanent sanctuaries, which is exactly what Cyrus does. It's the rebuilding of the temple that he's focusing on. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them 
their habitations. This incredible um, record that we have corroborating, of course, what we find in Scripture. For us, it doesn't necessarily do anything, but for secular people who look at the Bible, they struggle with it because the Bible, again, is so accurate. It fits so well. Everything we know historically, of course, it's going to, isn't it? It's his story, after all. Verse 5, then rose up, so after this decree has been given, we're told, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all them whose spirit God raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they uh, that were about them strengthened their hands with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with the beasts, with the precious things beside all that was willingly offered. And Cyrus, so also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Now, only 12 days or so before Cyrus comes into Babylon, this other king had been celebrating, this final king of the Babylonian empire, this Belshazzar, had been celebrating, drinking from these cups and so on that had been taken from Jerusalem, making a mockery of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And now Cyrus is granted permission for these very utensils and cups and so on to be taken back to Jerusalem where they'd come from. Even those did Cyrus, the king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto uh, Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. So this is now given uh, the permission to take these things back to Jerusalem. So chapter 2 then we get the return from exile we're told now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away to Babylon and came again to Jerusalem and Judah everyone to his own city looking at the end of chapter 2 because we have a lot of detail given we're actually told that there's 42,360 that returned from exile plus we're told there's another 7,337 servants gives us a total of almost 50,000 that return. But this is incredible because the whole nation, effectively 70 years before this, had been taken from the land. Yes, the northern kingdom had gone first, but then Assyria had been swallowed up by Babylon anyway. And out of all the Jews that are there, there's just 50,000 that choose to go back. Chapter 3, again, continuing this return, we read, When the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And then stood up uh, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and we now know who he is, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they come together and they build an altar... So they can offer these sacrifices once they've got back to the land. And they set the altar upon its basis for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings there unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept also the the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings uh, by the number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. So it's incredible celebration. But then we read, and afterward offered the continued burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all, that set, all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they've come back, they're offering, they've set the t- uh, the temp- uh, an altar up, they're offering these sacrifices, they're celebrating the feast, but no work has yet begun. 
And then we read, now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God of Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests of Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So they start this project, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Finally, they get to this real pivotal moment for them. But then we're told that many of the priests and the Levites and the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundations of the house were laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. This is an incredible moment. This is a really exciting time, and yet a sad time. As the people who had previously been there, that were old enough to have seen the, the Solomon's temple, no doubt thinking, if only we'd have been faithful, if only we'd have followed God, if only we had done the things that God asked of us. But you see, they were guilty of rejecting the word of the Lord. Jeremiah and so many other prophets had spoken to them. Time after time, God had given the opportunity to repent, and they didn't. And so now this weeping, you know, I'm reminded of that which we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When we will stand before the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll receive rewards for the things that we've done in the flesh, whether good or bad. And we're told that those that have sown to the Spirit, as it were, those that have put their treasure in heaven, are going to reap, they're going to receive a reward. Gold, silver, precious stones are the things that are, are referred to in terms of the type of the things that we've offered, eternal things. But we're told that the people that live their lives for themselves... They're going to be saved, and yet we're told, but so is through fire. In other words, by the skin of their teeth. You know, how sad it will be to be standing before the throne in heaven, thinking of, if only. If only I'd have not disobeyed God. If only I'd have been faithful. And I'm sure these people at this time are thinking exactly that. If only we'd have been faithful to God. What greater blessings would we have known? Well, chapter 4, we read of a delay to the work we read, then, verse 4, the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in the building. And they hired counselors and so on. And this then frustrates their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. It's interesting, you know, they kind of wait till Cyrus is off the throne. And then they write. And, you know, it's like this new king comes to the throne, is eager to please his subjects and so on, and they write to him and they talk about Jerusalem being this rebellious city and, you know, once a great king had been there and they'd rebelled against other nations and so on. Well, it's just incredible to stop and think about this for a moment because the objections of a few locals in the land were enough to thwart the decree of a Persian king. Now, we know from the book of Daniel that the law of the Medes and Persians can't be altered. You remember the situation when Daniel is put in the lion's den. Darius, that particular Darius Guberu, we believe from secular history, makes the point, I can't undo it. And yet in this instance, they're trying to get this work done. The people have returned. The servitude is over. 
But the desolations are not yet over. And it's incredible how just this little local tremor and murmuring and so on is enough to get a Persian king to halt the work, even though this had been law that they were to go ahead and rebuild the temple. Again, until God's time was right, the decreed desolations were, were ended. Until that point, the Jews were seemingly powerless to do anything. But mark the contrast. When in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 14, we read that God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now from that point, which we're just about to see in a moment, the temple gets built in just a little over four years, two months. You see, it's gone through this period of time where nothing's happened. Let me just take you through. And again, just this history. So Cyrus signs this decree. Um, This servitude of the nation ends in 537 BC. And about 50,000 Jews return home. But nothing is done on the temple for two years. We get to 535 BC there. The next five years become troubleless times as they get these problems with the the people in the land, the inhabitants of Samaritans and so on. And finally, Cyrus' son Cambyses becomes king, and as a result of him coming to the throne, the Samaritans seize the opportunity. They petition Cambyses regarding the Jews, and as a result of that, Cambyses calls a halt to the work, which is what we've just looked at there in Ezra 4. And that lasts for another 12 years, which brings us to 518 BC. And of course, now, God says, okay. Time is, is up. This is, this is fine now. We've got 537. You look at the dates. You've got two years plus five years plus another 12 years. That's 19 years from the decree. Do you remember that 19 I showed you? After the first or between the 19-year the difference in the start of the 70-year periods. And God ensures that both periods run for the right amount of time. Both run for these 70 years. We now get to the end of the 70 years. Again, as we looked at a moment ago, this 19-year period. They've returned here. But they can't do anything until God says, right, now is the time. This is amazing how God engineers all of these things. And again, there is a very expected end, a very defined moment that God effectively says, right, now is the time. And again, it's during this period now, historically, we've come down to. And it's actually in the, the, the second year now of Darius uh, that these things start to take place. So chapters 5 through 6, we start to see the work completed. We're told then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu uh, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Jerusalem, uh, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel even unto them. And then rose up Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak and began to build the house of God. Okay, and notice that last line. And the prophets of God were helping as well. They weren't just standing aloof, not getting their hands dirty. They were also involved in this. Well, we have these problems. It's Tatanai, the governor, comes up to them and says, who's commanded you to, to build the house and to make up the wall? And as a result of it, a letter then is sent to Darius, naming the elders, saying that these individuals, they're causing trouble. A search is made in the archives. The decree of Cyrus is found. Now this time, Darius, the Persian king, does the right thing. He goes to look first of all before he's prepared to pronounce anything. And then Darius sends this reply back to the people of land. Let the work of this house of God alone. So it's a real clip round the ear for the inhabitants of the land who are trying to stop these things going on. And so Darius then also makes his own decree, granting expenses and all which they have need of. 
So it completely backfires on uh, Tatnai, the governor, and those that were alongside him. And again, remember, these were the Samaritans, those that had been placed in the land by the Assyrians, and so on. So as a result of these things, now the go-ahead is been, it's really, truly given for the temple to be rebuilt. And we're told the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesy of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, according to the commandment of Cyrus, we've mentioned that already, and Darius, and now uh, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Chapter 7, we see another element now of this man, Ezra. Verse 1 of uh, uh, this chapter, we read, After these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra... Now this is where Ezra enters the scene, effectively now. Because up until now it's been a bit of history, but now Ezra's right in amongst the, the narrative himself. Ezra, the son of Zeruiah, and we're given his lineage, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah. This Ezra, because it goes through a long lineage, tracing him back to Levi, because he's a Levite. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests, according to the hand of the Lord and his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. What a great verse of scripture. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. What a great, I mean, we talk about memory verses. This is a good one for us to commit to memory. You know, that we would have the same kind of heart, that our hearts would be prepared to seek God's word and to do it. But not that just that, but then also to teach others as well. Ezra, a great character. So, Artaxerxes commissions Ezra to return to Jerusalem, as we've just seen. And any of Israel who are willing are also allowed to go with him. They're granted silver, gold, and anything they need to purchase animals for sacrifice. And again, and whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, this Persian king, says to Ezra. And all the treasures, uh, all the treasurers rather, beyond the river are to comply with whatever Ezra wants. He's given this incredible uh, situation. Ezra and the Levites are not themselves to be taxed by royal decree. And Ezra was to appoint godly magistrates and judges as well when he came back, given this incredible position of authority and power. And a warning also was given to any who would dare oppose him. Because he was doing what he was doing for God, but also by decree of the king as well. Chapter 8. That's a great little lesson for us here. Well, those who were to return with Ezra were all assembled. Ezra then calls a fast to seek God's protection. Why? Well, because their journey was going to be dangerous. They were carrying a huge amount of wealth. I'm not sure what it would equate to in today's terms. But they were carrying gold and silver and all sorts of things. They were a prime target for somebody to attack them. But Ezra has a problem because we read in chapter 8 verse 22, For I was ashamed to require of the king, to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we would spoken to them of the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against them that forsake him. So he says, I've just gone and told the king that our God is a great and awesome God and he protects us. I can't go back and say, oh, could we have some soldiers, please? And he feels he's kind of, okay, what do we do? So we read, so we fasted and besought our God for this. And of course, and he was entreated of us. 
This is wonderful because, you know, we shouldn't have to worry about support and help and all these things from the world. We should go to God. This is a lesson that keeps coming back. We looked at it last time. The situation with King Asa. Trust God with the big things, forgets to trust God with the small things. You know, whatever the situation, we can go to God and we'll trust him. And we seek him fasting and praying, seeking God. He's entreated of us, we're told. And we're told, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait by the way. Now it's implying that there were people laying in wait, but they just for some reason couldn't touch them. And we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. So God grants them safe passage all the way back, without any armed escort, without anything. Of course, they had the God of angel armies on their side. We were singing about that again this morning. It's the same God that Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be opened to see this incredible host around him. And we must never forget that it's the same God that we serve. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, Ezra gets back and no doubt he's quite excited about the potential things that are going on. And we read now, when these things were done, the princes came to be saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. And we're told that they've ended up getting involved in all sorts of wrong things, abominations that the other nations saw were doing. For they've taken of their daughters and they've married them and there's been this mingling and so on. Well, verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head. This is literally tearing your hair out, okay? This is what's going on. Plucked the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down a stony. Just absolutely mind-boggling. You know, sometimes you can feel a little bit like a desert rose. You know, by that I mean, you know, that you're the only one trying to serve God with all your heart. And there's a number of situations in scripture like that. Elijah gets to that moment. He thinks he's the only one. Lord, I can't carry on if it's just me. This is too hard. Jeremiah, another case in point. Even Paul at times feels it's just him. And sometimes we can feel it's like us against the world. And sometimes it even feels that there are other Christians that want to serve God or love God the way we do. And sometimes the Lord allows those moments just so we get alone with him. And just so God reminds us that it's actually all about him. It's not about us. Elijah has this great um, wake-up call as God suddenly says, Elijah, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, for us, sometimes we can get to these moments. uh, Ezra here. You know, no doubt made this journey so excited about getting back and he goes back and finds everybody living in compromise. And it's like all the effort that I've gone to to get permission to do this rebuilding and got the wealth with me. And do you not care about God? Well, you know, sometimes we find ourselves there. And sometimes the Lord allows those things that we would put our trust totally in him. Why is it you serve anyway? Why is it you have the ministries that you do? Is it so that other people will look and acknowledge and encourage? Or is it because you've got an opportunity to serve him? You know, the greatest reason to do anything we do, in fact, the only reason is because we do it for him. You know, let everything we do be done unto the Lord. Not unto each other, but unto the Lord. That's the reason we serve. It's not about other people. Jeremiah served even though a whole nation was disinterested. It's not about the results it's about the attitude of our heart. And then we're assembled unto me, everyone that trembled at the words of God. So very soon, Ezra finds there are people that love God, that loved his word. And because of the transgression of those who have been carried away, 
and so on. And we find that he falls upon his knees, he spreads out his hands unto the Lord his God. And as a result of this, Ezra prays on behalf of the nation. He calls the people together. And he basically threatens to excommunicate any who didn't separate themselves. To cut them off from, from Israel, effectively, is what he's saying to them. <clears throat> Ezra 10 verse 12 says, Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. People realize, you know, people aren't, aren't foolish. They knew that that which they'd done was grievance to God, that they should never have done these things. They'd always been told to keep themselves separate. And so there has to be a separation if we're to know the blessing of being his chosen people. The book of Nehemiah covers some similar ground but kind of moves on. And as I said, just 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah, um, again, believed to be written by Ezra. Nehemiah also may have been a contributor to himself. But the theme this time, rather than the end of the servitude, is the end of the desolations and the rebuilding of the city. Nehemiah has this prayer in the opening chapter, praying to God that has made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I'm but a little child. He says, I know not how to go out or come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people. Uh, and basically very similar prayers to which we find elsewhere what he's saying to the king is that or to god he, he's pleading because of what's going on in uh, in israel and we find it's in the 20th year of the king this is 445 bc now um that nehemiah he's the king's cupbearer in a place called shushan i'll show you on a map where we are in a moment gets this word or so receives word from jerusalem just a it says, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, Nehemiah, no doubt, was aware of the things that Ezra had done, and probably is assuming everything's well. Very similar situation to that we just mentioned. And he's bewildered, so he commits himself to fast and pray. And God lays it on his heart to go and petition the king. Really bold move on Nehemiah's part. Here, Shushan, by the way, Jerusalem's here, Babylon's here, a little bit further across here, we have Shushan. This is the place where a number of things occur in scripture. Um, and there's various battles um, midway between this place, Ekbana, um and uh, Persopolis as well. But Susa is also, it's the same name, Shushan, Susa. Um, but we find it's the place where uh, Esther uh, is queen, that's the place where she is, obviously, as we've just seen, is the home of uh, Nehemiah. Uh, and it's also where this code of Hammurabi was found, a very hi- important historical um, uh, archaeological find back in 1901. So that's that. But this decree then, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king, Antiochus the king, uh, that wine was before him. I took the wine and gave unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but the sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. So he's gone in to see the king. The king recognizes something's wrong and asks him about it. And God kind of gives him that opportunity to speak. And this is that moment where he has to draw strength from the Lord. And he says to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies waste? And the gates are over consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, for what do you make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Great lessons for us here about how we go about things. So we find Artaxerxes the king grants Nehemiah's request. 
including giving official letters to commence the work and access to the king's forest so that he can get trees and everything else. Uh, and he's also given a military escort without asking for it. All of these are given to him by the king. It's an incredible way that God is engineering these circumstances. And this decree, a very, very significant decree. We'll look at this when we go uh, into the book of Daniel. <clears throat> now, what's interesting is that the work to rebuild the wall then commences. You see, this decree was very much about rebuilding the city. The temple, if you remember, we've already just seen that, rebuilt and sorted out. But this, the wall, the city just still lay ruins. Well, every man was commissioned to rebuild the part of the wall by his own house. How do you think that would make them feel? How do you think that would make them feel about the quality of the work they were doing? You know, if invasion was going to come and it was going to come outside your house, how well would you make sure that wall was fortified? You know, there's a great lesson here because... We all, in a body of believers, should have ministries. We should all have things that the Lord has given us to do. How well are we doing those things? How much do we see them affecting us as a body? We're told that, you know, that every part of the body affects every other part of the body. Ephesians tells us that every part should be doing its share. And it's a great lesson for us in the quality of the work we're doing. How serious we take our role in ministry. Well... They were united uh, within. They were totally of the same mind, same judgment and so on. But the attack therefore comes from without. Satan so often does this. You know, when he can't get at you from within the body, then attack will come from outside. If Satan can get at you within the body, well, that's his preferred option. He loves to do that. But you know, if you're of the same mind, the same judgment as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 says we should be, well then, Satan will try and get at us another way. And that's exactly what happens. And chapter 4 will detail the oppression that comes upon them, uh, the Jews because of this, because of this work of trying to rebuild the walls. And the fact that they need to be armed and prepared. We're told that they basically, they lived in their clothes. The only time they took their clothes off was to have a wash. But they, day and night, they were ready, they were prepared. Well, that speaks of us, how we should also be ready and prepared. Every moment of every day. You know, I had opportunity this week to go up to... Uh, on Wednesday, the Christian Resources Exhibition uh, up at uh, Isha in Surrey. And incredibly, on one of the, the stands up there, they were selling T-shirts um, for vicars, for ministers, pastors. And there were a whole load of ones, but there was an off-duty vicar or off-duty pastor, off-duty minister. And I, went, I was up there with my dad, who's pastor back in Deal, and we were just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we're, we're never off-duty. It just boggles the mind. Well, this is a case in point. You know, these people here involved in a very real situation, very real kind of spiritual warfare situation, and they weren't off duty. They knew they always had to be ready, always had to be armed, and we should always be armed and prepared with the armor of God. Chapter 5 then deals with just judges. You see, a lot of the, the leaders, the hierarchy in the land, have been charging way too much. And uh, Nehemiah really challenges them on this, and that's dealt with, and they, uh, they stop overcharging for things, and, and so on. You can read that in chapter 5. Chapter 6 then records an assassination attempt upon Nehemiah himself. You see, Satan was trying to do everything he can to stop this work, but this was a work of God. We get to chapter 7, and let me just share this with you, because we've got a scribal error. Oh. Well, you should know by now that when we get these things, it's just our lack of understanding never gives us reason to doubt God's word. Some years ago, I got to speak at a church um, somewhere else in the country, I won't even bother saying where. And 
I was speaking there on the Friday night to the youth, and we had a great time. And on the Sunday, we went to the, the morning service, and it was okay. And in the evening service, we were there. And the minister was teaching and uh, so on. And um, it just happened to, in the text he was talking about, make the comment about this is one of those errors in the Bible. Um, Joy had to hold me down. I didn't walk out. Prayerfully, I really thought the Lord as to whether I should or not. But anyway, got home that night and I wrote an email to this uh, minister uh, expressing my displeasure of what he said. Uh, And he sent a reply, and this is part of the reply that he sent to me. So the first part of it is kind of cut off because that was a different issue. But we got on to this. He said, you will find many other numerical difficulties within Scripture that need guidance given on how to discern. E.g., compare Ezra chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and uh, with Nehemiah 7, verse 6 and 7. And you'll find exactly the same definition of people returning. So, this is those returning from the exile. When you look at the figures quoted, they vary considerably by a couple of thousand, although there is massive agreement within the lists. To hide behind an all-embracing word like inerrant, that was my fault, I used that one uh, in my letter to him, it says creates difficulties for people who will end up asking which one is right, instead of how are we to interpret that in the light of God's inspiration of his word. We all know that there are inherent problems with numbers in the Old Testament, because a dot or not above a letter, and there are no numbers in Hebrew as you know, which is true, uh, can uh, change it by a factor of a thousand. And dots do not survive well on a cracked manuscript. To gladly preach, as I have and will do again, that there are no contradictions in Scripture will not serve my people well when they come across some. (laughs) So, when they arise, as on Sunday nights, I may mention them rather than try to ignore them and teach right principles of biblical interpretation, which I did not do on Sunday night. There was my mistake, he admits. Hands up to that. But did do in a series entitled The Reliability of the Bible Before Christmas. So if you happen to be in his church before Christmas, great. But if you missed that one, then anyway. So, um, so that the discerning process is stimulated. So these were the comments that came back to me. Now, let me just ask you some questions based on that. Are there numerical difficulties in Scripture? Is this a real contest of who's right, Ezra or Nehemiah? They both give us lists of who's returning, the different numbers, absolutely statements of fact, that's true. Who's right? And are we reduced to trying to decipher cracked manuscripts for the truth? Is it really come down to that? What are right principles of biblical interpretation? Well, first of all, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have two lists of the returning exiles from Babylon. The number differs, as I've said, so which is correct. Well, if we look at Ezra, first of all, we're told now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which have been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, and so on. Okay, so now these are the children. Ezra gives us a definitive list. Okay, no question about that. He states that he's giving us the details. God's word, we have it here. Now, we turn to Nehemiah in chapter 7. And we read, and God put it into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people, that they might be reckoned by genealogy. Now bear in mind this is sometime later. And what does he say? And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first, and found written therein. And now he gives us the details. Spot the difference? Well, it's quite simple if you look at this, because Ezra tells us the exact details. Nehemiah tells us he found a list. This is what's on the list. 
Nehemiah isn't saying this is exactly the right number or anything else. Nehemiah says, I found a list and this is what's on the list. Now, the incredible thing is that there is so much agreement between these two lists. But even though this period of time has passed, that we still have a lot of um, agreement. But Ezra gives us the details. Nehemiah doesn't claim to give us the details. He simply says, I found a list and this was what was on it. Okay. It's, to me, there's more evidence that this is not contrived than any suggestion of any contradiction here whatsoever. To me, there is no difficulty whatsoever. To ever. And uh, again, it's not a contradiction in God's word. Once again, I'm, I'm very content and comfortable has been preserved. We don't have to get into this, uh, you've got to be a theological expert to, to verify these things. or you know, It doesn't come down to crack manuscripts. God promised to preserve his word. And I don't think we have any doubt or any reason to doubt that at all. So, chapter 8, last uh, major point, we're done. All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And we're told in the second half of verse 3, And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. That's how we should be, isn't it? Wanting to know what God's law says, what God's word says. And Ezra the scribe stood up upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Not sure it's like this one or not, but... And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people... And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Just be thankful that the moment we let you sit down on the Sunday, Ezra's way was get the people stand up. You're more attentive, apparently, according to Ezra, if you stand up. So, But this is what Ezra did. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly. And gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And that's what as a congregation we're trying to do. As a church we're trying to do. Simply read in the book God's word. Try and give the sense, give the meaning, explain what these things mean. So that you'll understand. And that really is the the desire. Certainly within Calvary chapels throughout this country, throughout the world. The verse by verse expositional teaching, and of course Calvary Chapel is not unique in expositional teaching at all. Many other great uh, individuals and churches have done this and continue to do it. But it's certainly a biblical um, principle just to teach God's word. And Ezra here just gives them the, the law. Just a wonderful moment in Israel's history as they've been regathered. And as we go on from this point, we find that then we get a brief history, an overview of the nation, taking us back to Egypt and this journey they've taken. And the fact that you know, God has done so much for us, let us draw a line here and say, from now on, we will serve him. And they effectively establish a new covenant, a new agreement on their own behalf to say, we will serve the Lord. And then finally, the last few chapters just detail the living in the land, how their lives are going to be from this point on. You know... We look back at our own lives. We look back at the things that God has done. And every time we come together like this, there's an opportunity to say, Lord, this moment now, this is that defining point. You know, for us, the 18th of May, 2014. You know, today can be one of those days where we say, Lord, 
We're not going to go back and live the way we used to. We're not going to get caught up with those things of the world. Just as the, the people in Jerusalem had done, they'd gone back and started embracing some of these other gods and religions and so on. You know, we, of course, we're, we're, we're so educated now that we, we wouldn't go and do that type of thing, but of course we allow other things. We, we're so, Satan's so subtle in the way these things come in, and Hebrews tells us it's a sin which so easily ensnares us. You know, so... Let today be one of these days for us, that this is one of those defining moments where we go forward. You know, and yes, 70 years ago or whatever, if we'd have been obedient at that point, none of that captivity needed to have happened. But it did. And God is faithful, God is gracious, and God brought them back to the land, and they're back. And God has established them. And let those lessons of the past be things that teach us and equip us for that which is ahead. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for these lessons that we see here. Father, thank you for people like Ezra and Nehemiah that had such a zeal to see the temple rebuilt, to see the walls of the city rebuilt, to see the worship of the one and only God reestablished as it should be. And Father, thank you for defining moments where we can say right at this point, I will cut away the things of the flesh, the things of this world, the things that do not profit me. And I will live my life for you. Lord, as we sing in our songs, I surrender all. Not because we have to, we're compelled to, but because, Lord, we know it is the right way to live our lives. It's the best way. And that you have promised us an abundant life. If only we walk by faith and walk in your spirit. So, Father, help us by your grace as we go from here this day to live our lives for your honour and for your glory. Lord, give us the grace to do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.